0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash switch.
2: Forty
1: five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
3: January twenty second, nineteen ninety six.
4: It's been twenty years in the making. Now, after six years in space and a 2.3 billion mile journey, the Galileo spacecraft has sent the first man-made probe hurtling into the fiery atmosphere of Jupiter. Tonight, Galileo phones in a report from Jupiter.
5: As you just heard there on the ABC News report, NASA's Galileo spacecraft was the first probe dedicated to studying an outer planet of the solar system it found plenty of surprises. Every time the spacecraft flew past Europa, for example, which is one of Jupiter's moons, Galileo's instruments detected anomalies in the magnetic fields around the planet. Those anomalies suggested that there was some sort of fluid, probably salty water, moving around beneath Europa's icy surface. Further measurements suggested that there was twice the volume of water on Europa as all of the oceans on the Earth combined. Scientists know that water is fundamental to all life on Earth. Could the oceans on Europa be another place for life to exist? Later, two of Jupiter's other moons, Ganymede and Callisto, were found likely to have oceans underneath their icy surfaces too, they also became candidates in the search for life beyond Earth. Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist. I'm Alok Jahar, The Economist, Science and Technology Editor. This is our second episode on the grand question of whether or not there's life elsewhere beyond Earth. If all goes well, on April the 13th, the European Space Agency will launch JUICE, a spacecraft that will explore Jupiter and its three icy moons up close. On today's programme, we'll explore how that mission will unfold and how the results that come from it will give us a clearer view of where life might and might not exist
3: elsewhere in the universe. There was a real focus on looking at Mars, but it was following the Galileo missions to Jupiter's moons, which have confirmed with us that you can find liquid water quite far away from the Sun.
2: JUICE is a big flagship-class European Space Agency probe that is going to go to Jupiter.
5: Tim Cross is the economist 's deputy science editor he 's been reporting on the upcoming juice mission
2: and when it arrives there it's going to look both at Jupiter itself, which is you know as most of our listeners will know, the biggest planet in the solar system, and effectively with its moons a sort of little solar system in its own right. And it's going to look at three of Jupiter's moons, uh, Ganymede, Callisto and Europa, with the goal of working out whether they might be habitable, as in the sorts of places that could conceivably at least support alien life.
5: So just take us back to uh, trying to understand why those three moons, what's made people think that those moons are particularly interesting to look at?
2: Well, so the thing you have to remember with this kind of astrobiology is it's a branch of science that doesn't actually have anything to study at the moment. You know, we haven't found any aliens. So the search is guided by sort of principles that people work out from looking at how life works on Earth. And one of the sort of biggest one of those is is follow the water. Because on Earth, at least, water is vital for life. You know, it plays like a direct role in some of the chemical reactions that make life and all of the other ones take place inside it. And its sort of odd and particular chemical properties means there's at least some reason to think the same might be true elsewhere in the universe. And that sort of follow the water rule for the last few decades has basically led scientists to Mars most of all, because we know looking at Mars that although it's basically a frigid desert today, in the sort of deep past, you know, millions or billions of years ago, it had surface oceans like Earth does. So the hope is either, you know, that some small fragment of liquid water has survived somewhere on Mars which might contain life, or if not that, then at least the signs of life that used to be there might be sort of fossilised into the rocks.
5: And one of the interesting things that's happened in the past couple of decades is that Europa, for example, was always suspected to have liquid water on it, but it's been shown through previous missions that Europa and also one of the moons of Saturn, Enceladus, seems to have, or is likely to have huge liquid oceans of water underneath massive ice crusts. And it's the same with Ganymede as well. I mean, in fact, these moons, people think, actually have more water on them than the surface of the Earth. It's incredibly deep oceans. And so searching them for signs of life or signs of prebiotic life, you know, before life started, is exactly the sort of focus. Which makes me think, when you talked about Mars just now, we as humanity have sent multiple probes, landers, that there were robots crawling all over it, looking for sort of wisps of these signs of ancient life. I found nothing at all. Is the idea of going to places like Jupiter and Saturn, uh, is that something like a new focus for scientists then?
2: Yeah, I think it is exactly that. So, you know, follow the water used to mean go to Mars. And as you say, Mars is now lousy with pros and we've not found anything. But Follow the water also now can mean go to these icy moons, because as, as you said, it's not just that there is a little bit of water on them. There's potentially huge amounts, like far, far more than there is on Earth. And we know in some cases that the water is liquid. We know in some cases that there are other chemicals dissolved within the water of the sort that you might need if you're trying to build a living organism. So in the past maybe sort of 20 years, these kind of icy moons have really become the, the sort of new hotness in the search for life. The reason that we're only sending a probe like juice now is just that's how long it takes for the bureaucracy to grind along, for people to sit down, write proposals, get them approved, build the spaceship, you know, find a rocket to put it on and so on. But I think, yeah, the focus is, is sort of very much shifting, I think.
5: And can we go through the moons they're going to be looking at? So Europa, Callisto and Ganymede. Just give us a bit of a pen portrait for each of these moons and what's particularly interesting about them.
2: So... We'll start with Ganymede, which is the main focus of the mission. So this is an icy moon. It's one that almost certainly has a big subsurface ocean. And one of the things that Juice is going to do is try and characterize it. So, you know, how deep is the ocean? How far down does it go? One crucial question is, is the ocean isolated? Or does it actually make contact at the very bottom with sort of the rocky core of the planet? Because if all you have is a massive ocean full of 100% pure liquid water,
5: that's useless for life.
2: Exactly, you need you need the other chemicals there. So the hope is that they will find some evidence that no, actually, you know, the bottom of this ocean is in contact with the moon's rocky core. And that, Allows it essentially to sort of leach chemicals out of that that organisms might be able to use, and you know, Ganymede is a it's, it's a big place. If it was a planet rather than a moon, it's bigger than Mercury. It has its own sort of magnetic field. Even besides the big question about life, it's just sort of quite interesting in its own right. Then Europa, it's also an icy moon. There's also evidence that it has an ocean juice will be going there, but it won't be spending as much time there as it does at Ganymede. So the measurements it takes there won't be as precise. And then Callisto is interesting because compared to Europa and compared to Ganymede, the surface looks much, much older. So it doesn't seem to have as much internal tectonic activity or or doesn't get these sort of water volcanoes that we think we see on on the other two moons. And that means that the surface is sort of a giant rocky historical document, essentially, that tells you a bit about what the Jupiter system might have looked like when it first formed many billions of years ago. So it's sort of a a window back in time.
5: Will the mission be looking at Jupiter as well?
2: Yes. So it'll be in orbit around Jupiter. And part of its job is, again, to sort of characterize a bit more of the planet itself and sort of in more detail. So to examine its magnetic field, to examine its atmosphere and so on. And one reason that's interesting is that one of the other things that sort of really exploded in the last 20 years is that we have more planets to study now than just the ones in our own solar system. So all these exoplanets that people have discovered around um, other stars. And because these things are so far away, it's easier to see the bigger planets first. So quite a lot of the planets we know about at the moment are sort of Jupiter sized. So, you know, part of the the point of the mission is, you know, the more we know about Jupiter, the more we can infer about what all these other planets elsewhere in the galaxy look like.
5: I imagine also Tim that sending a probe to Jupiter will mean some epically good pictures as well. I mean, we've had the Juno probe, the NASA one recently that went around Jupiter, but these ones will have even better cameras, I'm assuming, and all of that.
2: Yeah, t- technology marches on. So um, exactly. JUICE has some pretty high-resolution cameras on it, at least by, you know, astronomy standards. And one of its mission goals actually is to get much, much higher-resolution imagery of the moons it's going to look at than we've ever had uh For decades. I mean,
5: these moons haven't been visited for a long, long time.
2: No, and uh, not since the original Galileo spacecraft. It had a look at them, but that was decades ago, and the state of the art in cameras has come along a long way since then.
5: And what about some of the other instruments? Can you give us an overview?
2: So one of the big ones is a magnetometer, which measures magnetic fields. And again, Ganymede is unusual in that it's a moon with a magnetic field. Jupiter, as well, has an absolutely enormous magnetic field, the biggest in the solar system after the suns. and. You can, through all kinds of sort of clever computational wizardry, you can have a look at how the magnetic field of Ganymede interacts with the magnetic field of Jupiter, and that will tell you quite a lot about what the inside of the moon looks like, so it'll help in characterising what the ocean's like. And then it's also going to sport a big ice-penetrating radar, which basically does exactly what it says on the tin. And rather than just looking at the surface, it'll let you have imagery of sort of slices down into the Moon, several kilometres deep, to try and get a sense of what the icy crust looks like, how far down the boundary is, how this thing changes, because as the Moon orbits Jupiter, you know, this sort of big tidal bulge kind of spins around it, the same way we get tides on Earth. It'll let you characterise things like that.
5: All of the experiments you've talked about are going to characterize these moons, take images of them, understand the structure of the surface and some depth below as well, which gives us an indication of whether these moons might be habitable or not, depending on our definitions. But will they be actually looking for life itself? Will juice be able to sample things to work out whether there are organic chemicals in there or something?
2: Well never say never. So it isn't designed to do this. It's it's not a lander. We aren't yet landing and, you know, and going and having a swim in these oceans to see what's there. But listeners might remember another spacecraft called Cassini that was in orbit around Saturn. You mentioned Enceladus earlier on, one of Saturn's moons, which is also one of these moons with a with subsurface ocean. And Enceladus has plumes of water that kind of spew out into space. And when Cassini got there, people realized that actually you could fly the probe through one of those plumes and do chemical samples. Take example, yeah. Exactly, and so from that we know that in, on Enceladus there are all these other chemicals besides the water that you would probably need for life. There are organic compounds in the chemistry sense with carbon in them, not necessarily proving that they're life. Juice isn't necessarily sort of deliberately designed to do something like this, but we don't know a huge amount about Jupiter, so it'll be interesting to see what happens when it gets there.
5: So there's a lot more exploring for astronomers to do then. If all goes well, it will launch on April the 12th. How long will it take to get to Jupiter? I mean, it's a very far away planet. I imagine it's not going to be very soon, is it?
2: Yes, it it is a long way away and it's going to get there in about eight years' time, so it'll arrive in 2031, and the route it takes is sort of very roundabout, the way these probes often work. You know, you don't just fly straight from Earth to Jupiter. They do what are called slingshot manoeuvres around lots of other planets on the way, so you get a kind of speed boost by slingshotting around these planets and harnessing their gravitational power to sling you out. But even with that, it's going to take the best part of a decade to arrive.
5: But it'll be beaten by a NASA probe, which is also going to Jupiter. Tell us about that.
2: Yeah, so this is Europa Clipper, which is launching later but arriving earlier. It's due launch in 2024, and I think it arrives about a year before JUICE does. And as the name suggests, this is designed to look at Europa very specifically.
5: We'll hear more from Tim a bit later on. As Tim has alluded to, for a planet or a moon to be habitable, it needs more than just water. It needs a source of energy and it also needs the chemical building blocks that could be used to create things like DNA or proteins. On the icy moons of Jupiter, the energy could come from hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the ocean. On Earth, similar cracks in the seafloor allow heat to escape from the planet's interior. Meanwhile, chemical reactions between the water at the bottom of the ocean and the rocky core of the moons could leach out minerals that could be ingredients useful for life. The JUICE mission will provide important measurements to help scientists work out whether or not Jupiter's moons are indeed habitable. Plus, the same work could also point to clues for how life began in the first place on Earth. Next, we'll hear more from one of the teams that's looking forward to diving deeper, metaphorically speaking at least, into the ocean on Ganymede. The lead scientist for Juice's magnetometer will tell us why she thinks her instrument is so important in the hunt for the ingredients of life. That's all coming up. Today on Babbage, we're looking at the hunt for signs of life elsewhere in the solar system. This week, on April 13th, if all goes to plan, the JUICE spacecraft will launch from French Guiana. JUICE will carry 10 instruments to the moons of Jupiter. One of those will be a machine called a magnetometer to measure the magnetic fields the probe encounters. This piece of kit, JMAG as its scientists call it, was built by a team at Imperial College London. Our producer, Jason Hoskin, paid those scientists a visit. Hi. Hello. Welcome to last time.
0: Hello. This is Jason from The Economist. Assistant. Deep inside the Department of Physics at Imperial College is the Magnetometer Lab, where engineers Richard and Patrick showed me around.
1: My name's Patrick Brown. I'm the instrument manager for the JMAG. In this lab here, we build um, magnetometers. We build them for lots of missions, but the one you could see on the right here is the instrument we've built for JUICE. This is actually the flight spare. So the flight model looks identical to this, but we build a spare in case there's a problem. Fortunately, there was not. And so uh, the instrument consists of an electronics box, which is what you see on the left, the big black cuboid shaped thing. And then we've got three sensors that measure the magnetic field. And these sensors are accommodated on a boom, a deployable boom. So they are uh, away from the spacecraft at a maximum distance of 10.4 metres. One is further out at that distance and then the other two are a little bit inboard. The one that's closest to the spacecraft is still uh, seven metres away from the spacecraft. And so these sensors measure the magnetic field.
0: Magnetometers have been described as instruments that are able to see inside celestial bodies. Patrick told me what the JUICE sensors will be looking for.
1: We are going to try and measure the oceans inside Ganymede it's under the ice and then also inside Callisto which is another moon of Jupiter that we do flybys of and also Europa as well we do flybys of Europa as well strongly believe they all have a subsurface ocean and it's salty so basically you can get an electric current and that combines with Jupiter's magnetic fields to create its own magnetic field very very small so that's the main goal of the juice magnetometer. We'll measure lots of magnetic fields, but the primary goal of the magnetometer is to try and measure the magnetic field coming from these uh, subsurface oceans. And, And
0: how do the sensors actually measure the magnetic field?
1: So there's two types of sensors. One's called a flux gate, and this essentially is a piece of magnetic material, like a kind of small magnet, and you've got coils around it. And when the ambient field around varies, you can basically pick up Voltage uh, change in voltage that is proportional to that field. And if you use three of them orientated orthogonally, you can measure the vector parameter, but we also measure the magnitude. And with that one, that's an optical-based sensor. That is a quantum sensor, which is a gas of rubidium atoms, and uh, the measurement's based on fundamental constants. That's why it's what we call an absolute sensor. It doesn't need any calibration.
0: The characteristics of magnetic fields are described mathematically as vectors. That means they have magnitude and directional components, which the sensors will measure. The third sensor, measuring just magnitude, will be essential for calibrating the components. In the lab, the team set up a computer screen. When a sensor encounters a magnetic field, peaks and troughs will appear on a graph, depending on the characteristics of the field, as Richard demonstrated.
4: I'm Richard, I'm the Systems Engineer on JUICE and this is the flight spare instrument in front of us and we can replicate what we're gonna see in flight with the use of a slightly magnetic screwdriver and if I wave it close to our sensor you can see on the screen we should get a nice wiggle where it goes up and down there and that's it measuring the field of the screwdriver And so that's the sort of signals we might be looking for in space generated by the planets or whatever we happen to be studying at at the time.
0: How does the field of the screwdriver compare to the fields that you're going to be looking for in in space?
4: Screwdriver feels very high. (laughs) So this is probably orders of magnitude higher than any field we're looking at in space. So this is uh, just for a nice visual demonstration of of it. And I'm not even bringing the screwdriver particularly close. And you can still see a significant change. And that just shows how sensitive the instruments are.
0: In fact, JMAG can sense magnetic fields five million times smaller than the Earth's. That's because the tiny signals that will be given off by the moon's oceans will also be embedded in signals from larger magnetic fields, from Jupiter, from the sun, and even in one case, from the moon itself. But that's not the only challenge. The team building the spacecraft have had to make sure that juice itself doesn't interfere with the magnetometer readings. The other major challenge that engineers have had to overcome are the extreme temperatures and harsh radiation environment around Jupiter. Highly energetic particles like this can wreak havoc on both the spacecraft and its instruments.
1: The radiation environment at Jupiter is very, very intense. It's almost like going into a nuclear reactor that's broken down let's say and there's been an escape of radiation. So the electronics box sits inside a vault inside the spacecraft. Of course there are cameras and stuff that are outside but they've had to do a lot of intense work to verify that they're compatible with the radiation that we'll see at the Jupiter system.
0: All of the testing has now been completed and the instrument is ready to go but the hard work is only just beginning for the engineers. They've got some busy days and weeks ahead.
1: We've got to get back to Europe pretty quickly because we'll be switching on for the boom deployment, which is just one week after launch, and then one further week after that we switch on and we run through our tests of the instrument and switch it into all its different modes and make sure it's all working. So that will be a pretty intense week at at the operations centre, which is in um, Darmstadt and Frankfurt. And then we basically, hopefully, we ask to stay on while all the other instruments are commissioned. And the reason we do that is to see if there are any magnetic impacts when, let's say, a camera switches on or some other instrument. We, we hope not. The spacecraft's designed in, in a way to be quite clean magnetically, so we don't see any perturbation, let's say, but we want to basically double-check that there is none. So that'll go on for about 10 weeks. And then after that, the kind of operations for JUICE is that it goes to sleep while they do the cruise, and we switch on every six months for a quick checkout but we are anticipating to ask, because we're such a low power, no fuss instrument, uh, just please switch us on and then we can measure the magnetic field as we go all the way out uh, out to Jupiter. And of course, for the flybys, there are flybys of the earth in order to uh, get the energy to reach uh, Jupiter. We want to switch on for those as well.
0: Whether the team will be able to measure more than they bargained for on the long, complicated journey through the solar system to Jupiter remains to be seen. Upstairs in her large office with a sweeping view of the London skyline is Michelle Docherty. She's the head of physics at Imperial, and she's also the principal investigator for JMAG. Michelle told me why she's so invested in this project.
3: For me, I think one of the most important realisations that planetary scientists have come to in the last 20 years or so is that if you're looking in our solar system for liquid water, you don't have to be close to the sun to do it. So there was a real focus on looking at Mars And searching for liquid water or signs of it having been there previously. But it was following the Galileo missions to Jupiter's moons and then the Cassini mission to Saturn and its moons which have confirmed with us that you can find liquid water quite far away from the Sun but it's not on the surface, it's underneath the surface. And so that's really why we wanted to go back to Jupiter and three of its moons. We're certain all three of them have got liquid water under the surface and that's what we want to confirm with Jews.
0: So that's all part of understanding those key ingredients for life, isn't it?
3: Yes. So our understanding of life on the earth is that you need liquid water, but you also need a heat source for the water to be able to stay in liquid form, and you need there to be organic material. So those are the first three ingredients that you need. You also need those three ingredients to be stable enough over a long enough period of time that something can happen. And so what JUICE is going to be able to do for us with its whole suite of different instruments is that it's going to confirm liquid water, it's going to confirm there's a heat source, but also particularly the remote sensing instruments are going to be able to remotely sense if there's organic material on the surface. We might actually see some being sputtered off from the surface. So JUICE will confirm whether the moons of Jupiter have the ingredients for life to form.
0: Okay, and can you tell me a little bit more about your instrument and how that works? Okay.
3: So, yes, I'm the principal investigator for the magnetometer instrument on the spacecraft. And people always laugh when I say that it's the most important instrument, but I think it is. And the reason that it's so important is without the magnetometer, we would not be able to constrain the internal structure of the ocean. So what it's going to allow us to do is to not only measure the magnetic field of Jupiter, which is changing all the time, it will allow us to measure the internal dynamo field of Ganymede. Ganymede is the only moon in the solar system that has its own internal dynamo. And that's a real surprise. We want to try and understand that as well. But then on top of that, we want to measure these tiny little induction signals that arise because you've got electrical currents flowing in the ocean. And that will allow us to work out how deep the ocean is, what its salt content is, and also whether it's a global ocean. So whether it's under the entire surface or whether it's just focused at one part of the moon. And that's going to be really hard to do. Best instrument we've built so far. So the instrument can do it. But if I lose sleep at night thinking about juice, this is what I lose sleep about, is that we can tease out these very small induction signals. The way I like to describe it is it's like trying to find needles in a haystack and they're changing shape and colour all the time. And you almost have to try and grab one so you can get an understanding of what's going on.
0: I guess it's worth asking because you've talked about Saturn's moons and lots of scientists are saying they would rather explore those moons. Is now the right time to be going to Jupiter's moons or, or would you rather it was going back to Titan and Enceladus to find out more about Saturn's moons?
3: We should be doing both because these are both areas where we think the ingredients are there for life to form. So, you know, when we started planning JUICE, we were still in orbit around Saturn. So it made sense that we learned as much as we could from the Cassini observations at Saturn. Following those, I think NASA is now planning a mission called Dragonfly, that's going to be going to Titan. There are some proposals going in about follow-up missions to Enceladus. But for me, JUICE and Jupiter's moons was the next step because We think we know there's liquid water at all three, but we need to confirm that before we can then turn our focus on whether these are really places where life could form.
0: So let's say you do find what you're looking for. What kind of missions would stem from juice then? What would you want to see on Jupiter's moons? It's all hypothetical, of course. Of course,
3: (laughs) of course. You know, one of the one of the things that uh, scientists have already started talking about is sending a lander. And I've often been asked why we aren't sending a lander now. And my answer to that is, but we don't know where to land. We don't know where the ice crust is thinnest. If we want to get underneath the surface, we need to go where the ice crust is as thin as possible. And so in some ways, JUICE and NASA's Europa Clipper, which is going to have flybys of Europa, both of those missions will be telling us where we would want to take a lander to. So that would be one of the next steps.
0: So they'll be able to map all of these moons well enough to be able to choose a suitable location for that lander. Absolutely, Alanda. yes. Incredible. And they'll That's send right. some amazing pictures as well.
3: They will send some fantastic pictures, absolutely. And that'll then give me time to do all the difficult work we need to do to tease out the signals. I think for me, one of the things I need to keep reminding my team about is that we are not going to be able to resolve the ocean characteristics of Ganymede as soon as we get there. It's going to take the last circular phase, the orbital phase of the mission. And it's very difficult to have patience when you, you know there's something waiting to be found out. But we're going to do our best to be patient.
0: I was going to ask, he says it's going to be about eight years until the spacecraft reaches the moons of Jupiter. Yes. And then you have to wait even
3: longer. Yes, so the orbital phase at Ganymede will be in the last six months of the first three years of the mission. We will have a much better understanding about what we're seeing at Ganymede before that circular phase. But to be able to confirm whether it's a global ocean and tease out all of the signals will really take that circular phase. So I'm going to have to tell people to be patient all the time while I'm pretending to be patient myself. Of
0: course. Um, how are you feeling about the launch? How excited are you? Of course you're excited.
3: I'm really excited, but I'm also a bit frustrated now because it's out of my hands. I just want it to happen in a sense. Really very excited, but also slightly nervous. You're always nervous before a launch takes off. But I think also the thing to keep in mind is even after launch and assuming all goes well, there's in a 15 day period where lots is going to be happening on the spacecraft. The solar panels are going to have to deploy. All the various appendages are going to have to deploy. And they've all been tested and tried and should be fine. But I think we'll all breathe a much deeper sigh of relief once all of that is done.
0: So it's between day 15 and eight years yes. when you're, you'll be able to rest a little bit, relax a little bit.
3: Yeah, you know, you never quite switch off completely when you've got an instrument out in space. I remember on Cassini, I didn't realise how it was always at the back of my mind until after the end of mission. And I woke up the following day and I thought, oh. I haven't checked my email to make sure the instrument's okay. So you just get used to it. You routinely check in on the instrument every day. So you get yourself into a into a mindset where that's just normal.
0: And and just finally, if we're going to think about some of the other instruments, the less important instruments. Hey, <laughs> you got
3: that? Um,
0: what, what 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 are you most excited about aside from the magnetometer readings?
3: Um. So. My team will be working with all of the different instrument teams. We always work with the energetic particles, the plasma instrument, the radio wave instrument, because you need those four instruments together, including MAG, to be able to best understand the plasma environment. And in fact, two of those instruments get our data on board, because they need our data to be able to understand their own data sets. I think for me, one of the exciting areas is how we're going to be working with some of the remote sensing instruments to get an understanding of the internal structure of the moon so the laser altimeter is an instrument that fires lasers at the surface and depending on the power that comes back to the instrument they can work out how deep the ice crust is and maybe what the size of the tides are underneath the surface there's a gravity instrument that will allow us to better define the internal structure so it's putting all of those data sets together but for me, the thing I I learned on Cassini was for you to get the best outcome from a mission like Cassini or Juice is to combine the data sets, have the teams working together. So it's that international collaboration that we're going to do in the years to come that I'm really looking forward to.
0: And then you'll bring in the the NASA readings too to kind of have a giant international team.
3: Yes, we will, of course, be working with the Europa Clipper teams as well. And some of the people on my mag team are the same people that are on the Clipper mag team as well. Once we've both been launched, we will then have a much better understanding about when we're going to be there compared to when they are. And then we'll be able to plan these two-point observations that we're going to make as well.
0: That's great. Thank you so much for explaining all of that to me. Of course.
3: Pleasure. Thank you.
5: Astronomers have traditionally looked for life elsewhere on planets that sit in what they call the habitable zones or Goldilocks zones around stars. These are defined as places that are not too far away from a star so that any water on the surface of the planet freezes, but also not too close so that any surface water just boils away. In the solar system, Earth sits bang in the middle of such a habitable zone. But you might be then wondering, how could the moons of Jupiter? a planet that's very, very far away from the sun, well beyond the traditional habitable zone, how could those moons have liquid water? Tim Cross, The Economist's deputy science editor, helped me to shed some light on this conundrum.
2: Jupiter's way beyond what they call the snow line, which is the point at which water on the surface will freeze. And on the moons, it's, it's almost entirely due to what they call tidal effects, a sort of gravitational kneading. So you know, Jupiter's huge. It's got a very strong gravitational field. The moons orbit it. The orbits aren't sort of perfectly circular. And the upshot is that the innards of the moons basically get kneaded by Jupiter's massive gravity, and that creates enough friction to keep things liquid. And as you said, what's really interesting about that is when you start looking beyond the solar system, as you say, rather than a sort of little narrow band at, at just the right distance around the sun... If you've got a planet that's big enough, then potentially a planet at any distance from a sun with moons could be in the habitable zone. It massively, massively expands what we mean by the term. And it's hard to know how you would directly look for this around exoplanets at the moment. But it does mean that the definition's hugely expanded. Many, many more places in the galaxy potentially could host life than just the small number of planets lucky enough to have liquid water on the surface.
5: right, let's talk about some JUICE logistics then. So how long is the mission going to last? I mean, tentatively, these things are supposed to last just a few years but end up lasting much, much longer, don't they?
2: Yes, you're right. So once you've got one of these big expensive space probes to where it's going, the costs of keeping it there are basically zero. All you have to do is pay a few researchers back on Earth to sort of keep looking at it. And it's pretty common for them to be extended. Uh, JUICE is supposed to end its mission in pretty low orbit around Ganymede. They have built in a little contingency for extending the mission a bit, but my understanding is that some combination of like lack of fuel and lack of power on board the spacecraft means this probably isn't going to be something like, say, the Voyager missions. Which are
5: still going somewhere.
2: Yeah, whatever it is now, nearly 40 years later. There's no way it can be extended that long, but it wouldn't surprise me if it does get some kind of life extension.
5: Well, all these missions to Saturn, Jupiter, they all end up flying out by crashing into something. Uh, I mean, Cassini was crashed into Saturn, I believe, wasn't it? And it was quite an emotional moment. Well, this one will probably go down in a blaze of glory as well. Uh, Tim, what do you think the limitations are of a probe like this when it comes to that big question of whether we're going to find life or not? This probe won't find life necessarily, but what do you need to do more to get to that answer?
2: I think it's exactly as you just said. We're getting a lot closer to Ganymede or these other moons than we are now sitting on Earth. But it's still remote sensing. You know, you're still in orbit hundreds of kilometers up above them. You can look at them. You can characterize them. You can work out whether there's an ocean there. You can maybe even get a sense of what other chemicals are in that ocean. But I think you're very unlikely to be able to definitively say yes or no. You know, there are single-celled organisms or whatever – living in this ocean beneath us. But I think to really answer the question definitively, you essentially need to go down to the surface or even under the surface and have a look for yourself. And that kind of lander mission already exists on paper at all the world's big space agencies. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if we saw something along those lines launching within the next decade or two.
5: Can you imagine how hard it must be then to work out this life, even if you've got really good high-resolution pictures of exoplanets, if you can't do it by sending a probe in our own solar system, how on earth are we going to answer that question elsewhere?
2: Yes, exactly. I mean, you know, a probe to Jupiter takes eight years. A probe to Alpha Centauri, the closest star, would take, you know, decades or hundreds of years to arrive. That's one of the sort of limitations. So we talked earlier about how the habitable zone is maybe much bigger than people have traditionally thought because you can include all these moons. The trouble is all the interesting stuff goes on beneath the ice. So it's kind of encased and locked away from the outside world. For planets like Earth where the surface is sort of open to space, as it were, there are ways you can possibly get an idea and they mostly revolve around looking at the atmosphere. And if you find large concentrations of something like oxygen – which is very reactive and will go away quickly in an atmosphere if something isn't sort of constantly replenishing it. Then again, that's maybe not an absolute smoking gun, but it's a sort of fairly strong indicator,
5: yeah. Tim, thank you very much for your time. Come back in 2031 and we'll start talking about some of the results. Thanks, Alec. I will do. When looking for exoplanets that might support life, Astronomers have traditionally looked for Earth-like planets orbiting other stars within their own habitable zones. But those of you who heard our interview last week with the Nobel laureate and exoplanet hunter Didier Queloz will know that many of the planets that scientists have found so far orbiting other stars are more like gas giants, not that dissimilar to Jupiter or Neptune in our own solar system. Perhaps these exoplanets also have moons, Perhaps those moons also have oceans of liquid water, like those of Jupiter's. By helping us to understand Jupiter and its moons better, the JUICE mission will do a lot to inform us about these huge exoplanets that we discover all the time, and there could be billions of those exoplanets orbiting billions of other stars. If the moons of Jupiter are habitable, then surely some of these faraway planets and their moons could be habitable too. If that's true, then the number of places in our galaxy where life could exist could be far, far bigger than we've ever thought before. Our thanks to Michelle Doherty, Patrick Brown, Richard Borgen and The Economist's Tim Cross. And thank you for listening to Babbage. For more on JUICE or NASA's upcoming Europa Clipper mission, check out Tim's article in this week's science section, which you can find at economist.com or on our app. But remember, to read that, you'll need to subscribe to The Economist. Get one month free if you haven't already subscribed at economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. once you have subscribed i'd also encourage you to read a fabulous new essay we've published this week to mark the 20th anniversary of the completion of the human genome project we discuss how that mega project transformed the field of biology that'll also by the way be good preparation for next week's edition of babbage where we'll examine how studying genomes is shaping the future of medicine babbage is produced by jason hoskin with mixing and sound design by nico rofast the executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Alok Jha and in London, this is The Economist.